Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We are Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. Pastor Dan is Shiloh's main leader, head pastor, and I, Adrian, and the youth leader. Each episode will consist of us talking about different topics and ideals in the Christian faith inspired from the previous Sunday's sermon. We're going pulpit to podcast. We hope you find our conversation enriching, inspiring, and entertaining. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about Simon Peter. So Pastor Dan, I want to start this episode by talking about the question that I asked you after service on Sunday. And so to back up a bit, the scripture reading was from John chapter 21, and it's the story of when Jesus appears to Peter. So Peter and his friends, they've been fishing all night. They've caught nothing. Jesus appears to them on the shore and everyone knows it's him. And then Jesus says, and I love this. This is the NIV translation. He says, friends, haven't you any fish? And they say, no. So he performs the the miracle of catching this boatload plus of fish. And then he invites them to breakfast with him. So that was the scripture. And so for context, this story is actually happening after his death and resurrection. And so you and I actually in my office earlier, we discussed, like I asked, okay, how long after this death, his death and resurrection, is this happening? And um, you said through some sanctified imagination that was informed by scripture that it's likely that this happened between a couple weeks to about a month after Jesus's death. So it's fresh. And I think that's important to know here because that's where the signals got crossed in my brain on Sunday. Because I just kept thinking about that scene in The Chosen where Jesus appears to Simon and he calls him to be fishers of men, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of being a fisher of, well, fish. And so they're so strikingly similar because in both of these stories, Jesus is on the shore and he calls out to Simon and his friends who have been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. And he says, cast your nets once more. And then he fills their fit, their nets with a ton of fish. The boat starts to sink and it's a miracle and everyone's overjoyed. So that's super similar. Um, and I actually, I just, I love this story so much. Um, and it's probably because of the chosen, because in this scene, they just portray it so well. And it's just such an exciting time. Like I cried the first two times that I watched that scene in the chosen. It is so great. And I'm going to show it to the youth group again tonight. I think we've already watched it once, but I just love it. It's so, it's such a great scene anyway. So I'm thinking on Sunday morning when you're telling us this story and you're saying, well, then Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? I'm like, wait a minute. That wasn't, that wasn't in this portrayal. Mm -hmm. And so I was confused. I was like, did the chosen get the timeline wrong? Surely not. Right. I was like, but I don't remember this, this part, what is going on, but it's actually two different stories that are happening at two very different times. And so the one that we talked about on Sunday actually happens after Peter has sold out Jesus three times. So if we're looking into what it must've been like for Peter in this moment, he's probably feeling terrible, Mm -hmm. super guilty, right? Like I can't even imagine the mental torture that he must've been going through. It's only a couple weeks, right? So he's at rock bottom. So Peter or Simon, Simon, Peter, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, he, he's been up until this point in time where he sells out Jesus, he's been this fiercely loyal guy. I mean, he's Jesus's ride or die. He's by his side. He's standing by him. And he was like, Jesus, I will stand by you every day of my life. Like I am your dude. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, they've been through it together right? Like Jesus saves Simon from this trouble that he got himself in with Rome initially in the first story of the catching of the fish. And then he calls him to his ministry. He's healed his mother-in-law from some sort of sickness, right? Mm -hmm. He's, there's so many stories, like all of these things that they've been through. Simon was present at the feeding of the 5,000. He was there. He saw the whole thing. 
he was called by Jesus to walk on water with him, but because of his doubt, he nearly drowns Mm -hmm. and Jesus physically grabs him and saves him. Jesus tells Peter that he's the rock on which he will build his church based on Peter's confession that he is the one and only son of God. And in the very next scripture, the very next sentence in scripture, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to receive the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Like that's, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. And then in the very next paragraph, this is Matthew 16, Jesus tells his followers that he needs to go endure hard things in Jerusalem and that he's going to die. And, and that's the first time that Jesus tells them that. And Peter, Peter pulls him aside and he's like, no, 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 Lord, this is not happening to you. Like I, he's so loyal. He's like, no, I will not let this happen. Right. And And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, who calls him Satan. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you're standing in my way. And so Peter and Jesus have been through it. Mm -hmm. Peter has been by his side this whole time. He's seen it all. He's fiercely loyal. And then when the rubber meets the road, Peter denies him. Not once, not twice, but three times. The first time he says, I don't know him. I don't know this guy. The second time, he says, um, I don't even know him. I'm not one of your disciples. I, I don't know this guy. Not one of them. And the third time, he says, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, completely denies the whole entire thing. It's just entire betrayal. And so, of course, then Jesus dies. This horrible, painful, ruthless, torturous death. And he's gone. And the Holy Spirit comes down on the apostles at Pentecost and a week or two passes and they don't know what to do. So Peter's feeling like the pits and he's like, I'm just going to go fishing because I know how to do that. Hmm. And then the story begins. So tell us a story from there. Okay. Well, I, I want to adjust your timeline just a little bit. Okay. Okay. Um, Pentecost is a Jewish festival that was the occasion for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And <laughs> I forgot to mute the phone. <laughs> and the um, that's kind of the culminating event. So it's more likely that this uh, event where they're in Galilee fishing happened before Pentecost. So they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. Oh, okay. Um, the coming of the Holy Spirit follows Jesus's return to heaven. And there's a, that's important just because it it explains how we become Christ to the world because we are filled with his spirit. And so, Mm -hmm. but anyway, so, so like you said, he's, when you look at what's happened, um, Jesus was crucified. He, uh, he's dead. And on Easter morning, the story goes, you know, that he was, um, Resurrected, but they didn't know it yet. The women went, and then they came back and told the, the, the apostles. Peter and John ran to the tomb, saw that he was resurrected, uh, or at least that he wasn't there. And then they came back, and they had to kind of figure out what just happened here. And and uh, uh, it wasn't until Jesus appeared to them that they believed, like the women had. And when he appeared to them. Um, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. And in that context, the scripture's telling us that he gave them open minds so that they could understand what happened and how it all went down and why and, and you know, what the purpose was. And, and so they got divine insight into the turn of events. Um, but at this point, they're not really filled with the Holy Spirit as much as they've been enabled by the Holy Spirit to have a better understanding and to be able to connect with Jesus in that moment in this room where they were staying and hiding from Jewish authorities and Roman authorities. And there's a place in Scripture where they're told to look for him in Galilee, ultimately, that they're going to meet him there. And so sometime in the next few weeks, they make their way to Galilee. 
And I'm sure they were very sneaky about it because they're trying to get out of Jerusalem and they are associated with public enemy number one. And uh, now people are going around saying he's alive, he's resurrected, and they really want to get these guys and shut them down. And so they had to be very careful getting out of Jerusalem and back to Galilee. And then they get back to Galilee and... As I was telling you earlier, I imagine Peter saying, okay, so we're here. Jesus hasn't arrived yet. What do you want to do? You know, mm-hmm. and, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. I mean, what could be more comforting for him at this terrible time in his life than his old familiar boat on his old familiar slip at the dock there where he fished every day of his life up to the time he met Jesus. What could be more comforting than that, to to go and do what is familiar? Mm -hmm. Um, There may have been a sense in his head that he better get used to fishing again because he's washed up as an apostle. Oh, You know, there's there's a possible... That's a storyline we could explore, you know. Maybe maybe he figures he better get back to fishing because, you know, he's not good for anything else. He's failed the Lord. And, you know, Peter's an all-or-nothing kind of guy, you know. And so he struggles with this this trait of being an all-or-nothing kind of guy. Um, So for him, he's all in for Jesus. And then when he fails, he figures he's all out. And so when they go fishing and catch nothing throughout the night and then it's morning and they see Jesus on the shore and he has his little fun with them saying, hey, fellas, how's it going? You know, um, they know it's him. They recognize his voice. But then he says, have you tried throwing the net on the other side? And, And this is where your confusion came from, because it was Jesus intentionally recreating the occasion of Simon's calling. Mm-hmm. He's, he's recreating the calling. He's reinstating Peter, so to speak. You know, obviously Peter's the one with the problem here, not Jesus. Jesus doesn't have any reason to think that Peter is no more, isn't qualified anymore. Like, We don't get any indication that Jesus thought that Peter failed in any particular way. He told Peter that he would deny him. And he didn't say that that would separate them forever or anything like that. He just said, I know you sound really zealous and and committed right now, but I promise you, you're going to deny me before the night's over. And I've often thought about that whole situation and I don't want to waste our time. Well, it wouldn't be a waste of time, but I want to, I want to stay on your topic. But I've often thought about why he denied Jesus and asked myself if I would do the same thing. And I think the answer is probably. Hmm. Um, and it would start out with a very practical implication of, I want to stay and see how this all goes down and perhaps find an opportunity to rescue Jesus. And if these people you know, wrestle me to the ground or turn me over to the authorities or beat me up. I can't help Jesus, you know? So, Hmm. so, I mean, I I think Peter's denial was plausible in some ways. And it's not that he is denying Jesus, you know, to save his own skin necessarily, but that's a discussion for another day. Yeah. I just want to give him the benefit of the doubt because Jesus did. It was Peter that wouldn't give himself the benefit of the doubt. Peter's the one who, after a night of fishing, still is down on himself big time and believing that because he didn't get one thing right in his relationship with Jesus that he's a total failure. Thank God for Peter because people like me, we need that reminder all the time that that. Our relationship with Jesus, unlike our relationship with a lot of people we know, doesn't depend on us doing what they want the way they want it done. 
See, that's our problem. We tend to relate to Jesus like we do other people because most of us grew up in homes where we thought we would be more loved by our parents if we did what they wanted us to do. And in some places, parents really exploit that because they're not healthy. And then people will work in a job or in some environment in their life, they'll find themselves associated with people who have some authority over them or who have uh, authority over matters that influence outcomes that are important to you. And so you try to please them. And some people are impossible to please. And so we've all suffered with that. And Peter is struggling with this temptation to think so little of himself because of this failure and the way that everyone interpreted it. You know, um, to his credit, he doesn't try to explain it away. He just lives with it. So he's on the shore now having seen the miraculous catch a fish and recognizing the meaning of this it seems to him like this, this thing with Jesus is unresolved. And we're left with the impression that Jesus appears when he wants to. So they're not on a schedule and they don't know when their next appointment with Jesus is going to be. And so when Peter sees Jesus on the shore after the miraculous catch of fish, he's like, I'm... I just, I have to be near him. I don't want him to get away before we resolve this. So he swims ashore because he just wants to be close to Jesus, either to be told, get out of my sight, I don't want anything to do with you anymore, or to be told, it, you know, let's work, let's work this out. I mean, he just needs closure. Mm-hmm. He needs closure. And so he runs to Jesus, swims to Jesus, because this need for closure. But Jesus has already given him a sign of how things are going to go because he's recreated the calling from season one of The Chosen. (laughs) And how beautiful, right? right? He's recreated the calling by giving him a miraculous catch of fish. And Peter's not stupid, but it hasn't all added up yet. And so later when they're eating the fish and they're having breakfast, Peter, you know, Jesus asks Peter this strange series of questions. And believe me, even in their language, this was a weird set of questions. Peter's reaction was, this is really weird, Jesus. Where are you going with this? I mean, even even if we could speak the native language and be present in the scene, we would think this was a strange exchange. Because Peter is being asked, do you love me? And it, it's, a, it, it's like, well, yes, I love you. Now, I mentioned in the service on Sunday that, that the first interpretation I'd ever heard beyond what I grew up with was in a seminary class in the 90s where the professor said, you know, there are different versions of the word love in the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was primarily written in. And the word for the love that Jesus uses is, do you love me with all your heart, Peter? Are you sold out? And Peter's response is, I love you, but he uses a different word. And that word implies that he must not love him that much. It sort of suggests that he just is a good friend and I like him Hmm. because he's decided that he's failed Jesus. And it wouldn't be right to say, I love you. I'm so sold out that I will follow you to the ends of the earth. That's how much I love you because he's already proven that he can't do that. Yeah. And so Jesus's response is okay. Take care of my flock. And, you know, it could have just ended there. I mean, it could have ended there. But then Peter, he gets the same question again. And this time Jesus says, Peter, 
Are you devoted to me? Are you willing to follow me uh, because of loyalty? So it's a different kind of love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you might say that it's a sort of love like when you say you love Taylor Swift or you love a certain athlete or, you, you know, you don't love them intimately, but you are really devoted to them and, and being around them brings you joy and, and you make choices so that you can go to their concert or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so he's asking Peter, okay, so, so you're a fan. I can count on you to be a good fan. Right. And, and Peter says, yeah, I'd say that's pretty obvious up to a point. Right. Where are you going with this Jesus? Cause you're really making me uncomfortable. <laughs> And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Strange questions, weird conversation. So finally, the third time, Jesus says to him, okay, so you dislike me. You know, so we met a long time ago. We had some good times together. Um, you're going to go way, you know, you're going to go your way. I'm going to go mine. I mean, I have lots of lots of people like that in my life partly because of my career and so forth, but there are lots of people that I was really tight with while we lived together and served together in the similar environment. But then our lives went different directions and now we don't talk to each other anymore. We still have affection for one another, but there's nothing more to it. And so it's Peter's being asked, you know, is that what it's like with us? And Peter says, yes, Lord, that's what I've been trying to tell you, because it says he got a little irritated with Jesus the third time. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to tell you, I've proven myself to be about that good to you and not much more, because he's really down on himself. And Jesus says, Peter, then feed my sheep. And yeah, a lot been made about the fact that he denied Jesus three times and Peter got told three times, I want you for this job. But basically what Jesus is saying to Peter is, it doesn't matter how you feel about yourself. The only thing that matters is how I feel about you. And I feel like you are the guy that confessed that I was the Christ, the son of the living God. I feel like you're the guy who boldly proclaimed me when I sent you on mission trips. I feel like you're the guy who is going to lead this movement into the future and that you're going to lead the other ones and they're going to follow your example. And you know, your brokenness is what I need. Mm. And it's your... It's your confession of faith in me that is the rock upon which the church is built, not the strength of your will, not your ability to always do the right thing and to always have courage when you need it. You know, it, none of it is so dependent upon you as it is my opinion of you. And my opinion is, is you are qualified to feed my sheep. So take care of my flock. And that was a moment of real importance to me as, a, as I was trying to make sure that I felt a real calling to the ministry because back in the 90s, I was just getting started and, and you know I was going to have to do a lot of things that were going to be hard for several years, hard for my family. At the time, I had five children living at home two of them with spina bifida and related medical issues and one of them just six months old and we're moving into a parsonage and we're going to live the ministry life and we don't even know what we're getting into because we're just naive and I'm going to go be I'm going to be going to school for years and I'm going to be going through all kinds of hardships and tests and and I'm wondering if this is what I should be doing and I've got family that are saying things to me like are you crazy what is wrong with you? You know, I, I mean, I really took a lot of heat from family about this decision. And, and, and a lot of people were just saying that I was crazy, immature, irresponsible, you name it. And so there I am sitting there in that class in that very first seminary experience. And the professor, Dr. Cooper, is telling that story much like I just told it. And I heard Jesus saying to me, 
doesn't matter what anybody thinks about you. The only thing that matters is what I think about you. And I think that you can take care of my sheep. And I heard that loud and clear. And I've been trying to take care of his sheep ever since. And sometimes you hear me say, even recently from the pulpit, you know, I love you because Jesus asked me to take care of his flock. And that'd be like me trying to take care of your kids. I feel the responsibility and the trust that you're putting in me. So I'm going to lay down my life to protect your children because that's, that's your faith in me. You're, you believe I would do that. That's why you're willing to entrust them to my care. And this is what Jesus is saying to me when he says, I want you to take care of this group of people in my name. I want you to work specifically for their spiritual well-being and to devote yourself to caring for the flock the way I've called you to care for the flock. And it's pretty powerful. It's extremely powerful. What a beautiful story of, of God's love for yeah. us. Like if, if I were listening to this podcast, I would rewind and I would listen to whatever you just said that Jesus says to Peter, because he's saying that to us. Yes. He's saying that to every single one of us. It's beautiful. He wants you to understand that you are saved because he loves you. Not because you did anything to deserve it, but because he loves you. When you accept his salvation, you're in effect saying, as Peter did, you are the Christ. You're the, you're the redeemer. You're the son of God. You are God. And Jesus says, and that is the rock that this whole thing is built on. That confession right there. When you say, Lord, you are my redeemer, and you are God in the flesh asking me to put all my faith in you and to trust you from now till eternity. And when you say yes to that, then you're grounded. You're founding yourself on the rock of our salvation, which is that confession. And then whatever happens in your life, Jesus is always there saying, well, I told you to do something, you did it. I told you you'd probably fail and you failed. I, I don't care. I love you. I mean, nobody gives you the unconditional grace and love that we all desperately need like Jesus does. And it's right there in that story. Peter's redemption was something he needed a lot worse than Jesus needed to give it to him. But he said, whatever way you want to define our relationship, Peter, I still have faith in you. And I still believe you can do this. Who doesn't need to hear that? The people pleaser in me is just like, filled to the brim right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's something my generation can relate to a lot as millennials, maybe even Gen X. Like you're always trying to please your parents, please the people you're around. You're doing, 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 earning love, earning this, doing that because that's what we grew up hearing. Mm. And there's such a guilt and a shame associated with that because you've learned well, when I behave like this, I get treated like this, mm -hmm. whether positive or negative, for your entire life. So you're constantly seeking this approval. And yet, here's, I mean, I think this is the heart. This is the heart of God, in my opinion. Because he's saying to Peter, to you, to me, to whoever, whoever. He's saying, yeah. I love you for who you are. Yep. I know that you messed up. Called it. <laughs> right? He's saying, I knew that you would. I said that I, I said that you would. And yet, I love you still. Mm 
And even in that process, it can be confusing. Like in this, in this story that you're saying where you're like, these are a couple of weird questions. Mm -hmm. And Peter is like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I love you. Why do you keep asking me this? Right. And he's getting kind of frustrated. And I think we can all relate to that. I mean, I can at least in one point in our lives of like, okay, something is happening. I'm going through something. Maybe you hear God's voice in it. Maybe you don't. And you're just like, why am I here? What is happening? And then at the end of it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Hindsight's 2020. And you hear, oh, that's what God was doing in that. And he loves me still, even though I did this, even though I messed up, even though I, whatever, we've all done something that we can regret. We've all done something that we can let get in, get in the way Mm -hmm. of life and of love and of, well, quite frankly, even trusting in God, even being a Christian. I mean, there are people who've accidentally killed people. Well, how could God love me? I've killed somebody. Mm-hmm. How could God love me? I've done whatever. How could God love me? I've been dealt this hand. And yet in this story, God is saying, I still love you. I always have, and I always will. And I'm going to use you to feed my sheep. If you'll just say yes. Mm-hmm. And we hear that over and over and over in the Bible. There's so many stories. Moses was like, but God, I'm not a public speaker. Right. And yet God is saying, but you're going to speak to my people and you're going to teach them these 10 commandments. And I mean, it's just, it's all over the Bible of these people, these vessels, sometimes broken, that God says, I love you still. And I'm still going to use you in a beautiful way that may not make sense right now. Well, I think you and I had a talk about this once a long time ago, but the concept of the chosen, not not the series per se, mm. although I think that's where they get their title, is the whole idea of being chosen by God stems from the fact that he chooses people who are the least likely to succeed. He chooses people who are inherently humble. See, we have this image that Christians have cultivated of Peter that isn't untrue, but it's incomplete. Um, A lot of people who lack self-confidence can be brash Hmm. and they can posture because they're trying to overcome their their uh, uh, self-loathing or whatever. they're, They're trying to overcome the bad feelings they have about themselves by trying to act tough or to act brave. Now, I'm not trying to say that's what's going on with Peter, but but what I can say for sure about Peter is he was humble enough to keep coming back to Jesus, to say the things and do the things that the other guys weren't brave enough to do. You know the old story about Peter and the boat? Where what We talk about Peter failing because he lost faith and started to sink. No, the other guys in the boat failed. They didn't even get out. Mm-hmm. True. They didn't even get out of the boat. Peter's the success story. He's the one that got out of the boat. Oh, wow. He walked in faith as far as he could to Jesus, but his faith began to falter. He's a hero. Yeah. Because he's the guy that's willing to try what the others aren't willing to try. He was the one when Jesus said, who did the people say I am? He was the only one that said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, Peter had the courage to say the thing that, you know, sometimes when I'm in the room because I'm Pastor Dan, I ask a question or I get, you know, overhearing people having discussions and then they realize that if I'm in the room, they don't want to talk because they're afraid I'll know they don't know what they're talking about. Like, they don't have the courage to say what they think because they know that if they're wrong, I'll be there to correct them. And yet, isn't that your job? Like, well, could we back up for a minute though? Before, <laughs> yes, it's my job, but have you ever heard me correct somebody or, or, or in any way, you know, belittle them because of what they said? I, no, I would like to think I'm at least a decent enough Christian 
to have the love and the grace of God in me to say, that's very interesting. I wonder what it would be like if we took what you're thinking and we combined it with this piece of information and maybe we come to a different conclusion. You know, like, like I always try to act graciously with people. And I never assume that when people are talking that it isn't God trying to say something new to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm always open to the possibility that someone's going to say something in my presence that God wants me to hear. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, yes, it's my job to provide spiritual leadership and the benefit of some of my expensive education and all that. But at the end of the day, I really get disappointed that when I'm in the room, people are afraid to talk because they don't want to look dumb. Well, let's go back to Peter. He's not afraid to look dumb. He'll take his chance. Yeah. I admire him for that. He's not afraid to, to, to expand himself. And so what's so tragic about this moment in the boat the night before Jesus shows up and gives him these three questions is that Peter has decided he's afraid. For the first time, he's afraid. He, he's decided that he can't he can't go any further for some reason he's giving up on that thing that made him unique among the apostles because he was always the one that was front and center with his and that's why we always assume he was the leader I mean we draw a lot of conclusions about Peter that we can't really be sure are true all we know is is that he is recorded being the guy who will say the thing that nobody else in the room will say. He's the guy who will try the thing that nobody else in the boat will try. And so we just assume that makes him a leader. But what it does is it makes him at least bold mm-hmm. and courageous. And my feeling is, is that he finally ran out of courage. And that's when Jesus says to him, now you're in the perfect place to begin my work for you because humility is the critical element for every Christian believer. Really, every Jew, like, like the entire Bible presents a picture of people who either humble themselves before God or suffer the consequences. We just have a tendency to think like Old Testament people thought that if you don't humble yourself before God, the consequences are harsh. And there's this, uh, this, this tendency to approach the God of all creation, Jesus' dad, as the same way they approach the lesser gods, the ones who would definitely hurt them. And so humility isn't about, you know, self-effacing as much as it is fear, you know. So you can either be humbled because of fear, which isn't real humility. It's just keeping your place so that you don't suffer the consequences. Or you can be humbled because of the love you feel. Now, Jesus cultivates a love in us for God that makes us desire to put him ahead of us, you know, Um, I learned to put the seat down after my wife and I got married because I love her. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise I didn't, you know, not because she would hit me over the head with a frying pan. If I forgot, I did it because I love her. It was just an expression of love to be sensitive to this person who is my bride of 33 years now, to be sensitive to this person's needs and to want to meet those needs because of love. That's the difference between the humility of a person who is, you know, working a quid pro quo deal with a lesser God. The whole story of Job, for example, was really just the the accuser saying to God, I don't think he loves you. I think he does what you want him to do because you do what he wants you to do. Quid pro quo. And so God's like, all right, I'm gambling on him. Let's see how it goes. And funny, that story and the one we were just talking about, they have a lot in common, don't they? Yeah. But the idea was simply to say, no, he really loves God. And he'll love God even when he has nothing left 
to give. And that's the whole point. And so Peter is basically saying, you know, Jesus, I've let you down. I failed you. I don't feel worthy of your friendship, but I'm here right now. I mean, he could have disappeared. He could have got out of town and just said, I'm done. I failed. I don't, you know, but, but he, why did he jump out of the boat and swim to shore? Because he'd rather be with Jesus, even with Jesus mad at him, than not. And I'm glad that you said that because that was another question I had on Sunday in my mind. Why did he fling himself into the sea immediately? I was like, was he so ashamed that he was trying to drown himself? Like what was happening? And so I'm glad that you put that into context for me of like, no, he was eager. He just wanted to be there quickly. So he just jumped and he went and he ran for Jesus. He wanted to be forgiven, but he also wanted to be um, like I said earlier, he, he needed the closure, I'm sure. It's like, I need this resolved one way or the other. And I don't want you to disappear before I get this resolved. And, and so I think he was anxious and, I mean, like eager, but I also mean like anxiety, both. It mm. was both sides of the coin, you know. He was eager, but he was also worried and... He needed this thing to be resolved. And Jesus knew that. That's why he asked the three questions. So I know you want this resolved, and I'm trying to construct a way to resolve this for you that makes it clear. Well, you know, the next thing that Jesus says to him after the three questions is, you know what, Simon? Soon you'll be doing everything I've asked you to do and more, and it will come to the point where you will even be going places you didn't want to go and doing things you didn't want to do, and other people will dress you, you know, as if to say, you are going to devote yourself to me so completely that your life won't be your own anymore. And it was true. You know, it was true. And, um, and it's a real shame, you know, that this wonderful human being who was without a doubt, a prime example for us as a Christian has been deified in a way and turned into a prime of a different kind. And, and a, a, uh, uh, he's been, you know, lauded as, as somebody, you know, not unlike a lesser God himself, he would never go along with that mm -hmm. any more than Jesus's mother would go along with that. Don't worship me. Don't laud me as though I'm worthy of anything. Don't pray to me. Don't I, I'm probably offending a few people, but I really just think that it's that humility thing. You know, it, it's understanding that Christ is all Christ. Jesus is everything and putting anything ahead of him is at the very least a disappointment to him and a setback for you on your spiritual journey of sanctification, which is a $10 word we use in church to describe being more mature as a Christian with the every day that passes. And our sanctification, by the way, will continue even after we enter into the presence of God in heaven, you know, we still have to be sanctified to be, you know, immediately in God's presence, you know, that, that the holiness is, is a pursuit. And, uh, you know, and I'm expressing my Wesleyan beliefs there, but at the end of the day, you know, Peter's this wonderful, wonderful example. And thank God we have things he's written in his old age to see how much he's changed. To witness his sanctification gives us hope for our own sanctification. It's amazing. So, so give me a few examples of those. Like when Peter is old, like what, what does he tell us? What, if you got anything off the top of your head? <laughs> well, I would have to confess that I forgot to bring my Bible over to the microphone before I sat down. Um, but he is talking to the people of the church 
in his letters about surviving a lot of tests that they're going through. And he's reassuring them over and over again that these are all signs of their righteousness in, in God's sight. Like he, he, he is a, a uh, comforting, encouraging elder to them. Um, he speaks of his relationship with Christ as a living, breathing, ongoing thing. He's connected with Christ in a deeply personal way that doesn't require Jesus's physical presence anymore. Um, and, and so, you know, he was a great comfort to the church that was being persecuted. Um, and his letters gave more uh, instruction about the, the, the relationship with the physical world. And, and I guess that bears mentioning, because we were talking about this right before we came in to record. And, and something that modern Christians are not dialed into, and you let me know if time becomes an issue here, but what a lot of modern Christians are not dialed into is the reality that the Bible speaks of things that are supernatural in nature. <laughs> That's a poor way, poor choice of words, supernatural in nature. They're supernatural, which means they're not natural. <laughs> so let me rephrase that. The Bible talks about a lot of supernatural things. And they are things that we will explain away because we don't see these things happening now and we can't imagine them. And we think that's all a bunch of fantasy. And we think those people were old, uh, not old, but people who lived in ancient times and they're ignorant, you know. And we, we assume that we are superior in some way to the humans who lived two or 3,000 years ago because we have knowledge they didn't have. But what we are is the same as them, but we have some knowledge they didn't have. Hmm. You know, that, that human nature and human beings are pretty much the same throughout all of history, human history. Uh, technology changes, but people don't change. And I say that because the things they wrote about, the things they were describing are real if we believe anything in the Bible is real. You know, so my, I, every now and again, when I'm doing Bible study or whatever, or I'm writing an article or whatever, I will say to people, look, the fundamental thing you need to understand is I believe the Bible is true. So everything I'm going to talk about is built on that belief. And if you don't believe the Bible is true, then don't bother listening to what I'm about to say or reading what I just wrote, because I'm basing it all on my belief that the Bible is true. And so if I believe the Bible is true, then I have to believe that there are powers and principalities in this world that are supernatural and that the enemy of God is real and that God's enemy uh, has forces working for him, so to speak. You know, we've talked about this before. We use the gender uh, term of him a lot when we're talking about God and Satan and things, but we don't want to assume anything, you know, because it's not relevant, really. It's a matter of, of our understanding of the language that's used in Scripture and the fact that Jesus referred to God as the Heavenly Father. But apart from that, I'm not assuming God's a male or a female or that the lesser gods and the fallen angels and so forth are male or female. I'm not going to assume anything about them because they're a different form of God's creation. But all of this was created by God the Father, as Jesus defines him, and all of these created beings exist. And we call them angels and demons. We call them uh, sometimes lesser gods because it turns out that the gods of the Bible that people worshipped were probably real because they were demonic beings. They were beings who set themselves up to be worshiped and served. And we're seeing a time where those lesser gods seem to be coming back mm. into visible presence. 
And they're not stupid. These are angelic beings who fell from God's favor because they rebelled against God. And they're not stupid. And so they market themselves differently now. So Baal, for example, or, or Marduk, these were gods that people sacrificed children to, babies, for example. And in America, we have had wholesale abortion for decades and millions of babies have been sacrificed to the whim and the flesh of the one who didn't want to have a baby right now. Mm. So you say a woman's right, I say Marduk. Again, if this gets out, people are going to immediately write me off, you know, but my point is that not to talk about abortion per se, but to say that we still sacrifice babies. Sometimes we give birth to them and then we sacrifice them by not raising them, but letting the world raise them. So we're giving them over to the gods of the earth, the gods of the air, and, and saying, here, you raise my children. You teach them what's important. You know, um, I am conservative and I'm not afraid to say that. But what I'm getting at is more of a, a point that there's a lot of things that are happening in the world that have always happened in the world that were the work of God's enemies. He's the God of life and light. And he can be recognized by light and love, grace, mercy. The enemy is recognized by oppression and darkness, lies, distortions, decay and death. How do you know the devil's behind abortion? Because babies die. Just like when they were sacrificing them to lesser gods. You know, for the record, sometimes abortion is a matter of necessity for the salvation of a woman's life or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, having a complete liberty to just frivolously throw away a life because it's not convenient, that's worshiping the flesh. We don't have to have false gods that look like uh, iron structures or brass or bronze structures. We don't have to have false gods that are made out of stone or wood because all we have to do to find the most prominent false god of this air, of this world, is look in a mirror and then watch TV for a while and you realize that the god that you are the most devoted to is almost always yourself. But it's not just the ego thing. It's about the flesh. It's about pleasing the flesh. This is like Pan. Um, you, before, the, before we started recording, you and I were talking about Caesarea Philippi. And there's a temple there devoted to Pan. And it's in a grotto that is, is uh, in the side of a cliff. And, and in this cliff, there's a place they call the Gate of Hell. By the way, after Peter made his confession to Jesus that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. You know what Jesus said to Peter? That confession, not even the gate of hell can stand against. Mm. And it was right there. Pan is worshiped because he's the God of the flesh. He's like his, he, he's this half goat, half human who uh, really likes sex a lot. And he's always out there getting action and in the woods is even better, you know, because he's all about freedom and liberty to do whatever you want. And, 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 and so he's like the, the God of the free spirit. And you know what most people hate about Christians when they say they hate Christians is because Christians are always telling them what they shouldn't be doing and what they can't do. And I've always defended those people because I find that Christians are often too un, unkind and too ritualistic and too legalistic and all of that. But there is a part of me that's not very sympathetic because, you know, there are a lot of people out there who need to be told what they shouldn't be doing and they should comply. And the reason they should comply because it's in their own best interest. You know what? If you live like Pan these days, you're probably going to end up with a sexually transmitted disease that could kill you. Hmm. 
Yeah. Right? So you could say, well, if you want to be a free spirit like Pan, I understand, but it seems like a really dumb thing to do. And Pan doesn't care whether you die. He's a he's a lesser god. He's he, he has a, a a nature about him that doesn't die. And and so these gods are still here. Now I'm I probably sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but but what I'm driving at is, is everything that's in the Bible is true as far as I'm concerned. And more and more I find that the legends and the lore of the world totally lines up with what scripture tells us about the world. And the fact is, is that when Peter and, and the apostles set out to proclaim Christ, at the time they're doing this, the enemy is all over the world. And even the government of Rome, which is very modern in a way, and we still imitate it to this day, embraces these false gods and embraces this this kind of of devotion to these gods and all these gods all of god's enemies have one thing in common and i hope this gets me back to the real point which is humility all the gods that are opposed to jesus all of the 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 demons all everything evil in the world is devoted to the flesh that's a broad statement, and, and I'm doing that because I feel like I need to round up what I'm saying here. But, but the bottom line is a sin is about devoting yourself to your flesh, and the cure is devoting yourself to Christ. Hmm. That when you die to your flesh, isn't this what Paul says to us? That you have to take up your cross and, and die to your flesh. Because as long as you try to give your flesh what it wants— You'll throw away babies. As long as you try to give your flesh what you want, you will support human trafficking and destructive, horrible, evil people who prey on little children and treat them like property to be abused and thrown away. Um, as long as you are committed to your flesh, you will invite all sorts of evil to dominate your life. And... Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and in need of rest. Come to me. My yoke is easy. Just follow me. Just, just feed my sheep, Peter. Stop, stop hanging on to the weakness of your flesh. Your flesh doesn't matter anymore. You're working for me. You're eternal. You're just on one side of paradise and You'll be on the other one of these days, but your soul will live on for all eternity. You'll walk again on a new earth, a new heavens, and it will be as it was always intended to be. And so the whole point that I want to make about humility is this humility is about dying to the flesh. It's about dying to the flesh. And honestly, some, some of that's easier than others. You know, I listen... I have a hard time literally restricting how I feed my flesh because I like to eat. But I also like to eat when I'm nervous, when I'm lonely, when I'm depressed. I like to eat because it's a dopamine thing. And, you know, I say to myself, man, you got to die to this thing. But there's a lot more going on. And there's a lot more to it than that. And, and I take comfort from what Jesus said to Peter. It's okay. I love you. And I know you love me. But your flesh is weak. Peter's, Paul said it, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But he also says that there's one in the world who has overcome the world. And the world is of the flesh, and we can be overcomers too because we follow Jesus. So we may not always overcome the weakness of our flesh, but we overcome the enemy who preys on us by inflaming our flesh and the desires of our flesh. You know, so so I guess what I'm saying is, is that that, you know, when you're in a state of frenzy in one way or another, then it's the enemy 
when there's chaos and oppression, it's the enemy. But even when your flesh is weak, if you're in living in the light and you're living in the grace and, and your, your compassion is fueled by the Holy Spirit and your love for God and your fellow human beings, you know, is somehow emoting from you in some way or another, you're on the right side of this thing. Even if occasionally your flesh isn't always participating the way you wish it would. And this is to me what the story of Peter and the and and the miraculous catch and the and the three love questions is really all about is is, you know, through you I can do this. You know, and, and we don't know it, but there's plenty of indications that Peter, you know, probably changed some that day, but he still had a lot of growing up to do. And I, I want to say this on Sunday in the sermon, and it's really short and sweet. The one thing we need to keep in mind about Jesus is he was 30 years old, and the guys he was calling alongside him were, at best, his age, probably much younger. Probably a lot of these guys were teenagers and, and maybe early 20s. So they had a lot of growing up to do. Mm-hmm. So I want to make a few closing remarks. Listener, if you're still with us, what we want you to hear is that we want you to hear who God is and who God is not. And we've given some great examples of the ways that false gods manifest themselves in our world today. And there's a pretty large group of people who serve, let's say, politics as a false god. And so any time that someone mentions anything that may or may not be perceived as political, there's this immediate posturing. And so we want to discourage you from hearing any of that. Just denounce it. It that that's not that's not the point. If that's what you heard, that's not the point. The point is who God is and who God is not. And this story of Peter tells it so beautifully and so perfectly of who God is and his love for us. And it is important to recognize the false gods in your life because I know they're there. They're there in my life. And recognize them as who they are, but know that God is bigger and God loves you no matter what you've been through, no matter what is going on in your life. And if there is anything that is getting in the way of your walk with Jesus, if there is anything getting in the way of even, quite frankly, believing in God to begin with, ask, come in, ask us, ask Pastor Dan. He will answer with such grace and kindness and compassion. I promise you that. Because when I first came to Shiloh, I was a little baby Christian, despite growing up in the church my entire life. Pastor Dan, when I first came into you the very first time, I asked you an extremely personal question. And I put myself on out on the line there. And you answered me with such grace and compassion and love. And I'm still here five years later. and I'm not going anywhere. And so... Listener, if that's you, like, don't be afraid. Be like Peter. Ask. Come in. Be brave. Ask the thing that is getting in your way. And just live in the freedom of Christ. Hmm. And that's what we want you to hear, I think. True? I think you're doing great. (laughs) True. Um, And so with that, we'll talk to you next week. See ya.